Well, good morning, and it's a pleasure to be with you once again. This church has been a, a real blessing to me and to Linda over the years as we've been able to minister with you and meet some of you on a regular basis. Some of you have been here for a long time. Let's see. I spoke at uh, the youth group back uh, maybe, what, 10 years ago, something like that, uh, before I was a church. Spoke on dispensationalism and covenant theology. Anybody there besides Pastor James? Oh yeah, a few there still. Yeah, Pastor Bob. Yeah. So yeah, it's been you've been a blessing to me, and I appreciate so much the opportunity to be here and share once again in all the the worship and the good testimony from Sharon. And we just thank you for allowing us the privilege of being here. It's a, always a privilege. I'd like us to think about Matthew chapter 5, especially verses 13 through 16 this morning. So if you'd turn there in your Bibles, Matthew chapter 5, that was read earlier, but we'll pay after the Beatitudes in verse number 13. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt has become tasteless, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, or does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on the lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Every uh, spring, I think it's sometimes long in about the month of April, there's uh, the football draft. You know, the pro teams picked from the college uh, college teams and try to get some really good players and there's during that time a lot of talk about impact players you know you try to get somebody that really makes an impact on your team impact player is somebody that uh, well you know just uh, makes the play at the right time crucial time gets things done it's a quarterback you know down through the years um, uh, Brett Farr has been a kind of an impact player for the uh, Green Bay Packers Anybody here a Packer fan? You know, I'm not because I'm from, spent most of my time in Minnesota and they were deadly enemies. But uh, anyway, Brett Farr, he's kind of getting old and he's passing off the scene. But for a long time, he's been an impact player. Also, we have impact players in baseball teams. I, I tried to think of an impact player for the Dodgers, but I couldn't think of any. <laughs> well, after they lost so badly in the last three games. But um Anyway, impact players, pretty significant though on a team. And this passage, I think, is talking about being an impact Christian. You know, just uh, really getting things done for the Lord. And we're going to just talk about that this morning. The Lord here begins his famous sermon. This is a sermon on the mount. And in verses 1 through 12, he talks about the beatitudes, the blessed are you, the blessed are you when different things shall happen to you, have mercy in your heart, when your spirit when you're gentle, when you hunger after righteousness, when you're merciful, the peacemaker, all those different qualities that in your life, the Lord blesses them if they would have those kind of things. And then when you get to verse number 13 and 14, he begins to talk about how we're supposed to be impact players. Now, all this, of course, is in contrast to the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Pharisees and the Sadducees, had the opposite types of qualities that were described here in the Beatitudes. And so in verse number 20, you have kind of the big idea or the thesis of the entire sermon, which is, unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, 
you're not going to make it into the kingdom of heaven. You've got to have greater righteousness than what they had. Now, the, you know, the value system as described there in the Beatitudes, I'm sure has some kingdom overtones. We, we sang about the kingdom in one, one or two phrases this morning, the few kingdom where there's peace and where the rules and reigns. And so we look forward to that time. In fact, even the metaphor light may even have, a, have an idea that kind of picks up out of the Old Testament description of the nation of Israel. Isaiah chapter 60, verses 1 through 3. Arise and shine, for your light has come, and nations shall come to your light. He said that to Israel, that they were to be a light to the nations, and nations would all come to its light. But Christ's value system is not just for the future kingdom. You know, we believe that it also is for us, for our time period. It's for you and, and me that have been translated into uh, Christ's kingdom. And so the Bible teaches that we're to live out these kingdom values right now. These are to be a part of our life. I think the, the lesson that we learn in verses 13 through 16 is that genuine righteousness is most valuable when it makes an impact on other people. All these wonderful qualities, these, this true righteousness, true spirituality are described here. Christians have their value system to the real world. Actually, in context, it may be that the Lord is talking, uh, even making kind of a reference here, not only to the scribes, not only to the Pharisees and, and the Sadducees, but also to the Essenes. The Essenes were a group of religious people that had uh, wandered into the Judean des- desert and there lived together and in communes, kind of isolated from the rest of the world, and kind of waited for the Messiah to come. But Jesus says, "Don't don't be like that." We're not supposed to isolate. Yes, separated from the world's values and the value systems and all that is involved with that, but we're not supposed to be isolated from taking our impact into the real world. I wrote a famous theologian a few years ago said it this way. Flight into the invisible is a denial of the call. A community of Jesus which seeks to hide itself has ceased to follow him. And so, an impact player, Jesus is telling here, must just sit on the sidelines. You are to impact the community, the world, the people that you influence on a daily basis. And so, in order to explain this kind of balanced relationship that we're supposed to have with secular society, the Lord here turns to two different metaphors, kind of common metaphors, salt and light. In some ways, salt and light are both similar. I mean... They're both valuable commodities. Salt, especially in the ancient world, was used as a preservative. You know that. And uh, especially was used to keep foods like uh, meat from rotting. In fact, it was even used for, for salary. In fact, the word salary comes some way from the word salt. And sometimes we say that person is not worth his salt. You know, we're saying he's not worth his salary. It's a valuable commodity. And light was a valuable commodity in the ancient world as well. Not so much today when we can flick on the switches and light comes so easily, but in the ancient world, in the darkness, it was a valuable commodity. It is, both of these also are, are they're similar because they describe distinctiveness. Salt is distinct from the earth. You are the salt of the earth. And light is distinct from darkness. And on the other hand, there are some differences between the two. 
Salt is hidden. It works very slowly and secretly. And light is seen. It works openly and quickly. And so I don't think we're taking too much out of these metaphors to say that our lives are supposed to be quiet and penetrating on the one hand, like salt, and we're also supposed to be obvious and attracting like light. And so the lesson is we must make an impact on our sphere of influence. And just to outline the two metaphors here in the time we have left, there are two ways to become an impact Christian. Paul, our kingdom values must penetrate our sphere of influence. Our kingdom values must penetrate our sphere of influence. Jesus says, You are the salt of the earth. You are the salt of the earth. Now, Jesus' statement, I think, first of all, tells us something about the society in which we live, doesn't it? That is, unless there is some salt in the society, it's going to rot very quickly. We live in this postmodern society. Everybody talks about postmodernism. I'm not sure if any of us really know what it, knows what it really is, but at, at the least we know that postmodernism teaches that there's no universal objective truth. There is no objective reality. There is no universal objective morals. I read someplace recently that uh, in 1969, this is a year after I graduated from Ari, 68% believe that sexual relations before Chong and 1990s, only 3% believe that in some survey. So a tremendous change around as postmodernism has begun to, work its, begun to work its way into society so that there's no universal truth, there's no universal morals. John MacArthur says about postmodernism, the average Joe doesn't have any idea what postmodernism means. All he knows is he's pretty much free to think and do whatever he wants. That's how postmodernism filters down to the guy in the pew. It's not a philosophy. It's a lifestyle. The average guy just knows that culture doesn't care what he does. He knows that the movies he sees doesn't make a moral judgment on anything except racism or maybe somebody's intolerance. So he's free to do whatever he wants in the society and nobody can tell him to be what to be or what to do. And the bottom line is that he should just feel good about himself, and that's what it filters down to him. This postmodernism, just do what you want to do, and nobody can tell you what to do. There are really no morals. And we could go on with other things that this has brought about abortion and wrong views of marriage and euthanasia and so forth and so on. In some ways, kind of shocking, but on the other hand, I guess we shouldn't be surprised, right? Because Jesus tells us that Unless there's salt in society at all, that society is going to rot. And Paul says evil men shall wax worse and worse. And if it were not for God's intervention, this world would soon be unbearable. But God does intervene in different ways at different times. You know, you think about it, uh, God intervenes sometimes through some sort of colossal judgment on society. And we can think of the Genesis flood. We can think of Sodom and Gomorrah. Possibly Pompeii and Nazi Germany and, and so forth. And God also intervenes through common grace. Common grace is just the operation of the Holy Spirit based on the Lord's benevolent 
attitude toward all mankind by which he restrains the effects of sin and enables any kind of good or societal good. Common grace is, again, the Lord's benevolent attitude. I mean, he thinks he wants the rain to fall on the just and the unjust. He wants the sunshine to fall on the just and the unjust alike. There's a benevolent attitude that God has towards society. And in that, because of that attitude, God impacts society. He withholds sin from making as great an impact as it possibly could. Otherwise, this place would be, you know, this world would have been unbearable to live long time ago if it were not for God's common grace. And he also enables civic good and he enables fine arts and he enables good in the liberal arts and other fields such as that. It's all a grace, an act of the grace of God. It's not soteriological. It doesn't save people. But God's common grace intervenes so to make this place a bearable place in which to live. And one of the ways that he does that is through Christians being the salt of the earth, through Christians living out their kingdom values here in city. God has made us salt. He wants us to retard the rotting effect of secular society. But there is a danger in verse number 13. But if the salt has become tasteless, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by man. So our testimony sometimes can become tasteless. It can become insipid. It can lose its saltiness and become good for nothing. Uh, I'm told that salt, technically speaking, is a stable compound, but apparently it can be contaminated. I read uh, the illustration from William Thompson in his book, The Land in the Book. talked about a Middle East, Middle East merchant that rented several houses for storing salt, and he forgot to cover the dirt floors of the houses. And so many days later, he discovered that the salt had lost its flavor from being next to the ground, and the entire supply literally had to be thrown out and just thrown out on the street where people actually wanted or trampled on it. I read also that in Israel there are flakes of salt that form on the rock shore of the Dead Sea during the night. And in the morning after the sunrise, the salt begins to lose its saltiness because it blends with the shore and loses its distinctiveness it happens to us sometimes, happens to Christians sometimes, that their testimony becomes insipid. I think probably three ways that I thought of. In the first place, we can just be contaminated by the world system. You know, compromise with the world system. This is clearly what the Lord is really talking about here. Sometimes your testimony, your salt, can become tasteless, he says, by the contact with the world. The Bible talks a lot about the world. We don't hear very much about the world today in evangelicalism, you know. But the Bible talks a lot about it. James chapter 4. Friendship with the world is what? Hostility toward God. First uh, John 2.15, love for the world. Do not love the world, neither the things that are in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Conformity to the world, Romans 12. Do not be conformed to this world but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Don't be a friend of the world. Don't love the world. Don't be conformed to the world. 
It's a real danger that occasionally it happens that salt loses its savor by contact with the world. And then I think the other side of it is sometimes in order to avoid that, maybe for good reasons or maybe not for good reasons, we isolate ourselves from the world. I read the, the story in Gary Enrig's book on the book of Judges about the hoof and mouth disease that one time impacted a certain area. The cattle were dying, and this one farmer was determined to save his herd, so he sprayed every building on the farm, every room in the house, every pickle on the property, all the animals into a carefully scrubbed and disinfected building, padlocked the door, restricted all contact, didn't allow any visitors, even picked up the newspapers when it came with sterile gloves and baked it before he actually read it. And within three weeks, the cows all became sick and the entire herd had to be liquidated. And the point is that he said that the virus is transmitted through the air and you can't quarantine the wind. And that's the way it is with the world. You know, you cannot isolate yourself from the world. It's not something that, that we can do. We live in this postmodern world where secularism and anti-truth and everything permeate the air. So it's impossible to protect ourselves and our youth just through isolationism. We can't just isolate ourselves. We must be in the world, but not of the world. But Jesus says, as you sent me in the world, so I send them into the world. And then the third mistake in our relationship with culture is kind of a spinoff of this isolation. A lot of times, you know, what Christians do is kind of divide the sacred and the secular. So that they say that the, the sacred areas are the areas where we can participate as Christians, but the secular areas, you know, we've got to stay completely out of those areas. The impression being that we can only minister for God in the sacred area. When I went to college, I went to Bob Jones University, and old Bob Jones Sr. was still alive, and I can remember him so many times saying, you know, for the Christian, there is no difference between the sacred and the secular. Every bush is a burning bush, and all ground is holy ground. You know, you cannot divide your life into the sacred and the secular. Of course, there are, there's church, and there's our church responsibilities and so forth, but when you leave here, we don't all of a sudden become secularists. We take our Christian testimony into the secular world. This is still holy ground. This is still sacred ground. <coughs> so for the Christian, everything is sacred. All ground is holy ground and every burning bush. And you know, I was thinking some of the, the heroes in the Bible, the Old Testament heroes that were so good at that. Joseph in Egypt, for example. What a miserable society he must have been in as a godly believer in the true God. And he, in the midst of all that, illustrates a combination of spirituality and excellence and competence. You know, this, this disaster came to the breadbasket of Egypt and all the people, the leaders, the king and Pharaoh and others said, can we find anybody like this man in whom is the Spirit of God? And so they chose him to work for them and his testimony to God came through so clearly through his administrative genius in this wicked and pagan society. Well, what about Daniel? When Daniel's friends were taken to Babylon, they were put through this deprogramming operation that was designed to change their thinking into Babylonians, and so they even changed their names. They changed diet. They worked hard at just 
you know, replacing their identity and making them into Babylonians, much like our, our society does to us, tries to sectorize us, turn us into sectorized uh, people, leave our, leave our Christian beliefs behind. But what happened with Daniel? Well, Daniel refused to let his salt become tasteless. And he purposed in his heart that he would not repudiate his biblical value system. And he lived on the basis of the Word of God. He was not an isolationist. He was the master of Babylonian literature <coughs> excuse me, and language. He was polite. He was kind. He was smooth. But he was absolutely committed to the Word of God and to God's, God's teachings. And so by maintaining his biblical value system in this pagan world, he... He was a major impact for the glory of God, one of our heroes. I think there are many areas where we can take our kingdom values, aren't there? Besides just the Christian, so-called Christian pastorology church area, I think, for example, of the academia. Sometimes Christians in the past seems like have divided the sacred and the secular and said that the only thing for Christians to go into is you know, the pastorology area. And we're always excited about that when Christians do that. But they've said that the liberal arts and the fine arts and the science are secular. And so many times Christians have kind of abandoned those, those fields entirely. But I believe, don't you, that the liberal arts and the science and the fine arts, all those things belong to Christians. They come to us by gift form from God. By God's grace, Rush Dooney says that secularists own the liberal arts like cattle rustlers own the cattle. That's a good illustration, you know. Secularists own the liberal arts like cattle rustlers own the cattle. But liberal arts and science and all those different areas in academia also belong to God. They belong to Christians. This is what God has given to us. And so, salt, we can penetrate into those worlds and we take our kingdom values with us into those areas and try to make that impact that God would have us to make there. Of course, when we do that, we find sometimes that our teaching, our researching under the banner of Christ, so to speak, brings a lot of irritation from other people. But the Lord tells us, invites us, I think, to go into those areas and not be... Uh, overcome by the oppression and the, the disgust that they might have with us. Our goal is to take this radical passion for the supremacy of Jesus Christ and the centrality of God's Word into that academic world. And what about in the medical field, areas of ethics and other things? I have a friend in Minnesota, Dr. Mark Stuckey, uh, anesthesiologist, I believe, but has done so much thinking on the area of ethics and what can and should Christians do and what Christians shouldn't do. I think uh, surely we need to go into that realm. And there's government. Surely Joseph and Daniel give us an illustration of that. And there's the business with ethics. There's other professions and other trades where Christians are supposed to go. So penetrating our society with the gospel witness, with the kingdom values, with true righteousness. Salt, it's not necessarily brash, not necessarily obvious, but it just penetrates, just penetrates in there, just penetrates in there. So first of all, the Lord tells us here through this salt metaphor that our kingdom influence, our kingdom values must penetrate into our sphere of influence. And then secondly and lastly, 
The Lord teaches us that our kingdom values must uh, promote our witness. We might even say promote our verbal witness. In verses 14 through 16, here you have the light metaphor. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on the lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. So let your light shine before such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. I think here you have just the outline of the exclamation, you have the explanation, and you also have the effect. The exclamation is simply, You are the light of the world. You are the light of the world. You have a picture here in verse number 15 from a lily cottage life in Jesus' day where you have a kind of a projecting stone that would come out from the wall and the lampstand would be set on that projecting stone, this little cottage. And so they lit the lamp. They put it on this projecting stone and in these small cottages it would pretty well light the whole the whole room, the whole house. Light is very attracting, it's very conspicuous, but the Lord puts a metaphor on it in verse 15, and that is nobody would light a light, light the lamp, place a, a bushel or a tub or something like that over it. That would be the most foolish thing to do is to light the lamp and cover it up. I mean, even our children know that, right? Hide it under a bushel. No, okay? You know, they're not supposed to do that. That would be silly to hide our lamp under a bushel. And then the Lord gives the explanation for this light in verse number 16. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. So the explanation, his interpretation of his metaphor is good works. Let your light shine that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. In heaven, so these are the good deeds, the kingdom values, the genuine righteousness that are lived out consistently. I think there's a sense, don't you, in which our lives are the basis for verbal witness. Sometimes people, you know, just very quickly come to the Lord, but most of the time, it's through the testimony of other people, other people's lives that they see and are attracted to the Lord through those lives. They may see your good works. Glorify your Father in heaven. Paul says in time that our lives are to adorn the gospel. says in Second Corinthians that our lives are epistles, our letters. And so, the, you know, the Bible will tell us that the basis of our, of our witness, of our testimony, is this changed life, these kingdom values that we are living out on a consistent basis. Sometimes, you know, there's a lot, a lot of emphasis on kind of high pressure to get you out. Kind of like in sales school, you know. I remember going to sales school and many years ago I was going to sell Nave's Topical Bibles. I can almost still remember some of my speech. And, and the, they taught you that in the morning you, as you got up you were supposed to play. Uh, they were records. Anybody know what a record is? I didn't play <laughs> records with marches on them, you know, and uh, Sousa marches and get you all excited. And then you're supposed to grab your roommate's hands and jump up and down and say... One, two, three, four. I want in the door. And you say that over and over and over. And you get yourself all fired up. And then you go out and, you know, sell Nave's Topical Bibles. <laughs> well, you know, 
I'm sure enthusiasm is good, and sometimes we need to be really preached at and told, you know, what our responsibilities are. But I think it's to be that in the long run that our testimony for the gospel is out of our lives, flows out of our kingdom vast. I recently read a book, uh, How Local Churches Can Become Missional, Missional in a Postmodern Society. And the idea was that you took some of the principles that we teach our missionaries to do when they go into a culture, and you use those principles actually in your area, in your culture. Uh, one of the things that the authors emphasized was that because we live in such a secular society, people no longer know the Word of God, know the Bible, know anything about Jesus Christ. Because we live in such a secular society, that many people who come to Christ actually go through a fairly lengthy association with a group of Christians or a few Christians before they actually really are converted. And they say, with few exceptions, people come to Christ after they have journeyed with other Christians, examining them and considering their dreams. Considering their claims. I'm sorry, that makes sense, did it? <laughs> I'll say it again. With few exceptions, people come to Christ after they have journeyed with other Christians, examining them and considering their claims. So it's not just for individuals, it's also for a church, a group of church, as people come and are associated with you, you let your soul shine that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. And that's the effect. Verse 16, that others glorify God, that they may glorify your Father who is in heaven. So the effect, the impact of your light is not, and your salt is not to save society. And if we thought that, you know, we'd have a wrong interpretation of that. Of course, our impact does make some impact on society. The Lord uses that as a part of common grace. But that's not the point. The point is that our kingdom values and the sphere and our sphere of influence will actually bring the unsaved to the light where they will glorify God, accept Him as their Savior. In short form, what Jesus would say, if we'd put this into modern-day uh, modern evangelical terminology, Jesus is saying... This is how others come to know Christ and glorify and glorify God. Or in expanded form, it might go like this. Christ might say, that as people see your good works and hear your verbal testimony, the unsaved may come under the conviction of the Holy Spirit and accept Christ as Savior. We have disciple labs at the seminary. And in disciple labs, uh, people often give, we we'll always begin mine with everybody giving their testimony. Have, in a disciple lab, we meet an hour and a half every week or so with uh, the same four or five, six guys for several weeks. And then you get another group and you meet with them. But we always begin with testimonies. And time after time, you know, the testimony is, well, I came up, I met this one guy, and he was, he was really influential in my life. You know, he had real joy in his heart. He really had compassion, love, and care. Or sometimes they will say, well, I got associated with a group of people at a church, Bible-believing church, and they really lived out Christ-likeness, genuine righteousness, and over a period of time, they told me how I could come in right relationship with God, and I became a Christian. The effect is that people see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. And you kind of come into you know, kind of a full circle here in this passage, don't you? I mean, it, blessed are you, Blessed are you, a whole list of happiness, blessed things that will happen to you when these are true in your life. And then your, your, your light and your salt makes an impact on the unsaved people. 
And so they see your Christian testimony. And then finally, God is glorified. You're blessed. People see your light and your salt. They're, they're led to Christ, and God is glorified through it all. Sometimes people look on uh, discipleship. Sometimes people look upon impact as kind of an option. But Jesus says, you are the salt. You are the light. Both verses you have an emphasis upon the who makes. You are the salt. You are the light. Impact belongs to the sense of what being a disciple of Jesus Christ. You can't really be a disciple of Christ if you're not making that impact. And I just see this morning, are you salt? You're penetrating in a kind of quiet way into those areas of influence that you might have the opportunity and are you light? Is there maybe a little more of a conspicuous testimony of your Christian value systems that people can see and examine and through their salvation come to glorify God? Are we impact Christians? And by the power of the Spirit of God, I think God wants us to live out our our kingdom values, this genuine righteousness and be an impact for Christ. Let's pray, please. Our Heavenly Father, we just thank you again for the instruction that we have here. Simple metaphors, but we sometimes go by them pretty quickly. That they really tell us uh, how we're supposed to influence the, the world. That discipleship is not about just living in isolation, but it's about making it through a salt-like way, penetrating and also in a light way by promoting our verbal witness and our testimony. Lord, we pray that each of us would be impact players. That's what you expect for us to be, impact Christians in your work. We pray in Jesus' name.